The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. And Father, as we look to your word this morning, we look to you. And it is our prayer that you would be our vision, that you would be what we see, that it would be your face that we behold, that it would be you that we delight in, that we find joy and comfort and peace in. Father, send your spirit to work powerfully through your word and through the weakness of human preaching, that you would be exalted, that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened in our faith, that we would be closer to you, our Lord and our God. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat if you would. So we are back to the book of Psalms. And if you remember the last time we were in Psalms, we worked through Psalms 1 through 10. And we're now going to take this season to go through Psalms 11 through 20. And so this morning, we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 11 in its entirety. It's fitting with Psalm 11 that this comes as the follow-up to the book of Ephesians. As we've been working through Ephesians, and I know for me, as we reached that last chapter in Ephesians, the thing that, that stands out, the thing that resonates, the thing that rises to the top with the book of Ephesians as you're progressing through is the spiritual warfare. Uh, the outline for the book of Ephesians that always comes to mind for me is, is from a small book by Watchman Nee, and it's Sit, Walk, Stand. That's how he outlines the book of Ephesians, that first of all, we are seated in heavenly places. And then Paul gets into the very practical. This is how we are to walk that out and live that out. And then in that final chapter now, stand, stand in this spiritual armor and recognize that the battles that we fight are spiritual battles. Psalm 11 is a spiritual battle. Psalm 11 is David's wrestling with the affairs of this life. We don't even know what those were specifically. There are speculations, there are guesses at what situation he was in, at what time in his life Psalm 11 took place, but we don't know for sure but it was tangible. It was very real. It was the stuff of life. And it was spiritual warfare. And as we work through this psalm this morning, it's my hope that this psalm is as much of a ministry to you as it has been to me in this season of life. And that as we work through this, that the thing that will rise to the top is that God is our refuge and God is our reward. God is our refuge and God is our reward. If we leave here this morning with that, 
if we can cling to that, if we can hold on to that, if we can know that and live according to that, church, we're in a good place. No matter what life brings, God is our refuge and God is our reward. Look with me to the very first thing that David writes in Psalm 11 in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. Before we get to the problems, before we get to the trouble, before the adversity comes into our view, we stop here at verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. David is reminding himself, this is my hope. This is my safety. This is my security. This is where I will stand. In the Lord I take refuge. Now, if you look in your Bible, Lord is probably all capital letters, is it not? That's significant. That's communicating something to us as the translators translated our Bibles into English. They wanted to convey something important to us by putting that word Lord in all capital letters. That means that that is the personal name of God. Not just Lord, like Lord, Master, in general, no, this is Jehovah God. This is Yahweh. This is God as he has revealed himself to his people. That's why it is in all capital letters. And so David wasn't just vaguely spiritual. In some God, I take refuge In some spirituality, I take comfort. No, he is saying in Jehovah God, in the one true God, in the personal God, because that is what God has done. Back in Exodus, do you remember when Moses was being called to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Moses says, who should I say sent me? And that's where the Lord reveals himself to Moses. Exodus chapter 3, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus am I to be remembered throughout all generations. God is saying, this is, this is me. This is how I am to be known I have revealed myself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I am this personal God who has worked among you, who has shown grace to you. All throughout the Gospel of John, we read of these statements that Jesus makes, seven of them, I am you remember those in the Gospel of John? I am the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Over and over again, Jesus is saying, I am. I am. He's referring back to God's disclosure of himself, a personal God. David's refuge wasn't just in general spirituality or a vague notion about God, but it was in personal relationship with the one true and living God. Relational intimacy with the God of the universe. 
the God of the universe, the maker and creator of heaven and earth. Even just this morning, we have on our refrigerator right now uh, one of the handouts that you get at a funeral service or a memorial service for a dear friend of ours who spent his life as a missionary to Africa and Natalie was able to go down with, with the kids and to go to that funeral service. But on the front of it, there's a scripture. He made the stars also. And I remember that Jerry loved that verse because it was his God. And it was just a, a side comment. He made the stars also. All the things that God did, oh yeah, and the stars. If I make a star, you better know I'm going to speak that up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk that up. But for God, it's nothing. He made the stars also. Not hard for him. Just a word that he spoke. That's how powerful this God is, the God of the universe. And it's this God that we have relationship with, and it's this God that David finds refuge in. This is the believer's refuge. Yours and mine, this is our refuge, God. Well, why is it that David needed to focus his attention, to set his mind and his heart upon the Lord as his refuge? Well, let's look and we'll see that there were all sorts of calls to retreat. Calls to retreat. Continuing on in verse 1, David says, How can you say to my soul? And now listen from there to the end of verse 3. This is what people were speaking into David's ears. It's important to understand that. This is what others were saying to David. David, flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Do you sense this, this urgency, this despair, these words of discouragement that were coming into the ears of David? David, David, it's time to flee. It's time to fly away. It's time to run. These words weren't just landing in David's ears, but he says, how can you say to my soul? How can you say to, to my soul? These words were impactful. They were powerful. They were penetrating. We're not told where these words came from. We don't know who spoke these words to David. I have a few ideas. It could be like Job's friends. Maybe these were well-meaning counselors. Job's friends came to him, and they speak counsel to him, but it's discouragement, and it's off-base. And maybe that is what was taking place here with David. These are well-meaning counselors. David, you're going to die. Run away while you still have your life. Well-intended, but wrong. It could be that it was the devil, the enemy of David's soul that was speaking these words to David. He comes with lies, he comes with deceit, he comes with half-truths, he comes with questions. Has God really said that you'll die? That's what he did with Eve. She was deceived. It could be that, that 
That was the source of, of these words to David. How can you say to my soul, run away, flee? It could be himself was the source of these words, penetrating his own soul. I've experienced that, where I'm my own worst counselor at times. It could be that these were just the ideas in David's mind to flee away. And as he's working through this psalm, he's having to remind himself of what is true and where he stands. And no, I'm not going to to listen to the flesh that wants to preserve itself. But I'm going to stand strong in the spirit. These words, flee like a bird to your mountain. Retreat, run away, return back to the place of safety. Do you hear these same types of messages in your ears, trying to penetrate into your soul at times? Now, as... Nathan made mention of, I have not been here in this place for this purpose in a while. It's been January 24th was the last time that I preached here. And I'll say, I've been here in the mire of these verses, verses one through three, wrestling through these things. Wondering, what is my place? Where is my strength? What is my my refuge? And I've heard those voices flee. Flee like a bird to the mountain. I think to an extent, all of us at one time or another can relate. Give up. Give in. Do what's easy. Or the the best thing for you is to leave, don't engage, don't pursue fellowship. Maybe those words have even gone so far as to say to you, give up on life. That's a reality. And one that in this last year we've seen to an increasing degree. Just give up on life. Those are lies, and that is deceit, and that is not God's counsel for our souls. David continues, it's not just flee like a bird to your mountain, but why? Why? Look, the wicked bend the bow. That's, that's behold, Pay attention to this, David. Look at this. Listen to what I'm saying. This is supposed to get you excited. This is supposed to, not in a good sense, excited, but this is supposed to call you to move. The wicked bend the bow. Not only that, they have their arrow set in the string, and they are going to shoot In the dark, at the upright in heart, that is in secrecy. David, you're not even going to see it coming. You won't even know which angle it's going to come from. And if you are upright in heart, then you are the bullseye. You are the target. You are in the crosshairs. David, it's best if you flee And then in verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is a rhetorical question meant to get David moving, to flee like a bird to the mountain, not as an encouragement to David, but to bring him to a place of despair. David, the foundations are destroyed. Is there anything to stand on? 
What can the righteous do? It's in vain. It's worthless. Don't even try. There's no point to it any longer. David, it's, it's not worth the effort. No good is going to come of it. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's a good question. It's one that I've asked, and perhaps it's one that you've asked. Does it seem like that? Foundations are are being destroyed? I think sometimes it does. I, I know... In some cases, family, it just seems harder and harder and and like things slip away. Maybe the larger society. I know back in January when the capital was being invaded and rioted, that's the kind of thought that I had. The foundations are, are being destroyed. Wow, this is something that I could not imagine ever happening. And, and it's happening. What can be done? What can get things back to a right place? Now, I don't doubt that there are foundations that are being destroyed. But I would ask you this morning, what are those foundations that you build your life upon? What are the foundations that you are building your life upon? And if those foundations are crumbling, if those foundations are being destroyed, then we need to evaluate our foundations. What is it that you stand on? What is your daily foundation? What is the one thing that you know is going to get you through each day? Is it the strength of others? God be praised for the relationships that he has given to us, spouses, husbands, and wives, for friends, for Christian brothers and sisters in our times of trouble. But if those are our foundation, they are a wrong foundation. We are putting a burden on them which is too great for them to bear. If we expect them to serve as a foundation, we're setting ourselves up for great disappointment and setting them up for a massive failure because they could never bear that load. That's a burden too great for any. Or does your foundation consist in more of earthly pleasures, food or alcohol or Exercise or shopping, entertainment, recreation. Are those the things that that your life is built upon? And as long as I have this, as long as Netflix is there, I know I'll be okay. When it's been a really stressful day and I can just tune in and tune out and everything will be okay, and I can face another day tomorrow. That's not a good foundation. That's not the kind of foundation that we should stand on. It's not the foundation that we can stand on. It won't hold us. It won't hold the troubles of life. It'll only increase the troubles of life if that's what we're looking to it for. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church about foundations. Do you remember? No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. That is the foundation. That is the one and only foundation, the true foundation. All throughout Scripture, Jesus is called the cornerstone. That's a building term. That's the cornerstone of the foundation. That is what made sure everything was square and true and plumb and level. 
That was the standard. That was the one bearing the weight. And that is the foundation. He is the foundation. Jesus is our foundation. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We can stand on the one true foundation and we can continue to stand on the one true foundation because that foundation will never crumble. That foundation will never fail. The world might come crashing down. Sometimes it might seem like the sky is falling. But the foundation is sure, it is steadfast, it is immovable, it is what we stand upon, and it is the foundation of Christ that the church is built upon. And we will stand with Christ as our foundation. So it's here, and it's in answer to this question What can the righteous do? That that David responds to this call to retreat. Flee like a bird to the mountain, David. He responds to this call to retreat by having this wonderful view of reality. We need that sometimes, don't we? We say a reality check. Sometimes we need a reality check. Flee like a bird to the mountain, David. You're going to get pierced with an arrow. There are fiery darts that are directed at you in secrecy. You don't even know where they're going to come from, but they're going to penetrate. They're going to kill you. The very foundations of life are crumbling. What are you going to do, David? And David has this view to reality, this reality check. And he begins this in verse 4. This is David responding to this poor counsel. And he says in verse 4, the Lord, there it is again, in all caps, right? Jehovah God, Yahweh, the one true and living God who has entered into relationship with us through his son, Jesus Christ, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. How's that for a reality check? How's that for setting us back where we need to be? The Lord is in his holy temple. Things are spinning out of control, it seems like at times. Is God panicked and running and trying to fix things before they get out of control for him? No. The Lord is in his holy temple. He is in this place of worship. It is the dwelling place of God because God is holy and God is worthy of our worship. The Lord is in his holy temple. God is not an evil God. God is not an unjust God. He is a holy God. He is perfect in all of his ways. God is perfect in all of his works. Perfect. It doesn't get any better than that. There's no flaw. There's no failure. There's no shortcoming. He is perfect in his very being. He is God. And we are created to worship him. And it's in this that we find our place. As those created to worship the one true and living God. It's in the worship of God that life begins to make sense. When we find that this is what I am created for, this is how God has designed me, this is what my life is to be oriented around, we find that life makes a lot of sense. It's when we try to to find fulfillment. It's when we try to make our purpose all sorts of different things that it doesn't work and it's confusing and it's, it's frustrating. 
friend of mine years ago said, if you give a kid a hammer, everything becomes a nail, right? You give a, a kid a hammer and everywhere they go, everything's a nail. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit it. I know what this hammer is for. It's for hitting things. So I'm gonna hit. Everything then becomes a nail. If you use that hammer wrongly, it just doesn't make sense. If you hold the handle upside down, backwards, whatever it might be, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's confusing. But when you have that and you use it rightly, it's powerful, it's effective. And so it is with our lives. When we try to do other things with our lives that they are not supposed to do, when we try to make our lives about things that they are not about, it's confusing, it's damaging, it just doesn't make sense. But we're created for worship, and God is in his holy temple. And when we recognize that, and when we orient our lives around that, Life makes sense. And that's not to say that we'll understand everything. Because we won't. Because we're finite. Because we're limited. And it's not to say that everything will be easy. Because it won't be. But the worship of God begins to set everything else in its proper place, and gives us a proper perspective. The Lord is in his holy temple. And I want you to hear that this morning, church, and I want you to think on those words that God is a God to be worshipped and all of our lives are to be oriented around the worship of him. He is in his holy temple. But also, David continues and says, the Lord's throne is in heaven. The throne, this is the place of God's rule. And David focuses on the reality of God's rule, this holy God. This God who is perfect in all of his ways, in all of his works, this God who alone is worthy of our worship, is also ruling over his creation. And he rules in righteousness. And that's the focus of David. As he continues on in verse 4, follow along with me. David writes, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. For the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. David focuses on God ruling in righteousness. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. Now, maybe like me, you read that and you think, how do eyelids test the children of man? You've probably gone to the doctor and had an eye exam. Have you experienced that before? They, they stand you back and they have the chart in front of you. And they start with the top line, E. And the next line, and you can recite that, and you work your way down. And as you get to where all of those letters are smaller, what happens? Your face changes, doesn't it? It's not just a relaxed face. You start to squint, don't you? I do. You start to, to focus your gaze. You start to narrow your attention your eyelids come down, and you're trying to make out those words, those letters on that chart. That's the idea that David is conveying here, 
Not that God has poor eyesight. Not that God has eyes at all. This is just written in a way for us to understand that God is looking intently, that he's focused, that his eyes see what is taking place, that he is aware of everything, and and not dismissively, but his eyelids test the children of man. He's looking with intent. He's focused on what is going on among the children of man, among creation. He's squinting, if you will, to look carefully and to observe. He tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Understand that God is not unaware of what is taking place. He's not oblivious to things. He's not surprised by things. He's not caught off guard. Maybe like me, sometimes you're on the road and you see things take place and you think, ah, where is a police officer right now? If only they had seen that, what that person just did. Those things don't slide past God's attention. What we do, God is aware of. There's no skirting around, even in the darkness of night, getting out of the view of God. He sees and he knows and he tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves Darkness, who loves violence, excuse me. God sees and God tests mankind. Job. Job is a book that I I spend a fair bit of time in. And it begins that there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And you're aware of what happened to Job, that the possessions of this life, earthly things were stripped away from him. His family, his wealth, his health, all of these things. And then lousy friends come and start trying to counsel him and tell him, Job, it's your fault. You're unrighteous. It's because of sin in your life. And in chapter 23, Job says, God knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot is held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. He has tried me. He knows the way that I take. He sees. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. The Lord tests the righteous. James chapter 1. James writes, To count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We don't deny that there are trials and we don't deny that there are tests that we go through because the Lord does test the righteous, but not for the sake of ruin or destruction or discouragement, but no, this is the refining test. 
This is to burn away all of those impurities that we would be more like God, that all of those things that, that, that would corrupt us, all of those things that we would lean upon that can't support us would be burned away so that our faith is more pure, that our trust in God is more sincere, that our love for him is deeper, that it's him that we are focused upon. And when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. The Lord tests the righteous, but there is a difference. His whole his soul hates the wicked. His soul hates the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. God has wrath stored up for the wicked and for the lover of violence. There is a great difference between the testing of the righteous and what God has for the wicked and the lover of violence. Psalm 75, verses 6 through 8 say this. It's not from the east or from the west. It's not from the wilderness that comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Those are fearful words. God is holy. God is worthy of worship. God is perfect in all of his ways and all of his works. And it might seem at times like unrighteousness goes unnoticed. Or even at times, like, unrighteousness is rewarded. But we need to keep the words of God in our view, which give us a view to reality. We need to keep focused upon the word of God, which gives us a right perspective. And with this view to reality, David finally in verse 7 concludes with the believer's reward. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Now, who are the upright? Who are those who perform righteous deeds? Paul, in Romans 3, he says, there's none righteous, quoting from Psalm 14. Not even one. But then he continues on in Romans. In that same chapter, chapter 3, and he tells of the righteousness of God that comes to us, how? By faith in Christ. It is by faith in Christ. And in fact, I'm going to turn there and I want to read this to you because it is important for us to understand who the upright are. Chapter 3 and verse 21, it says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
Who are the upright? Upright are those who have put faith in Christ and received that imputed righteousness of Christ by faith as a gift from God. And this is where our uprightness comes from. This is where it is grounded. There is, this is where righteous deeds begin to flow from in the gospel, in our redemption, in our salvation, in the grace of God in Christ. Only by faith in Jesus can we be righteous. And what is the reward of the righteous? God loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the believer's reward. We will see God. We will behold his face. In 1 John chapter 3, the apostle John writes that, beloved, we are God's children now. This is a, a, by faith in Christ. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 4, again, the apostle John says that the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. It's God on his throne and his servants who are worshiping him. This speaks back to chapter 11 in Psalms. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. He is on his throne. We are worshiping him, and we will see his face, and his name will be on our foreheads. This is our reward. This is our everlasting joy to be in God's presence, to behold his face, and to have him looking upon us as his children, as his sons and daughters, as his redeemed. These heavenly realities, these spiritual truths, We may not right now be able to hold them. We may not right now be able to see them in their fullness or understand them in their richness, but they are true. They are true. You might look around and what you see instead, you think, looks pretty grim. You may even be listening and there may be voices speaking Despair, discouragement, flee, run away, get out. But church, look up. Your redemption draws near. Your heavenly father is in his temple. Your heavenly father is on his throne. He is worthy of our worship. He is deserving of our devotion And there will be a day that we will look upon his face. He is our refuge and our reward. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, your word is true. And your word comes to us where we are. We thank you that you have preserved your word for us and that through the ages 
and all of the different languages. Lord God, that we have your word that we can read, that we can even have copies of it for ourselves today. And these are reliable copies. They are trustworthy. And in your word, we know you and your works and your ways And Lord God, I pray that today, whatever is going on in life for us, that we would find our anchor in Christ and that we would know our place of refuge and our ultimate reward is in you. Lord God, where we have put hope in the things of this world, we confess that as sin And Lord God, we acknowledge that we need you to be our foundation. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for looking to other things as lesser gods when they are no gods at all, not worthy of our devotion or our worship or our life. Lord, I pray that you would rightly orient us to you so that we would know how to carry ourselves in this world. Lord God, anchor us in Christ, in the gospel, in the work that has been done for us in Jesus' life, in his death, and in his resurrection, that we would know there is nothing that we can add to our righteousness, but we are declared righteous by faith in looking to Christ and what he has done by offering himself as the perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice. And that we are declared righteous in right standing before you. Continue to bring us back to this place of reminding us who we are and what you have done for us. And that you are there for us as well as our refuge and as our reward. Strengthen us in this and help us daily to live this out for our good, but ultimately for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.